Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my bolted-together friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about an alternative to family-wise type 1 error control, the false discovery rate, and how it offers increased power in that middle ground between no error control and the severe control of Bonferroni. Along the way, we also mention Leif Erikson, Discovering Columbus, The Flintstones, Brontosauri, Brontosauruses, Dying Grandmas, Coors Field Home Runs, Hitting Richard, More Calvin Ball, The Power Reaper, Thelma and Louise, Making Flights on Time, Intellectual Judo, Wet Paper Bags, and Distribution of Blame. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I've been thinking a lot about how much we were lied to when we were children, and I realized so many things that I was told growing up just turned out not to be true. You mean like seatbelts are an unnecessary luxury, (laughs) or lead makes the water taste better? I remember, of course, we studied a lot about Christopher Columbus. We had to memorize so many things about his discovery of the new world and all of that. But I grew up in a Scandinavian community where we had a giant statue of Leif Erikson that said he was the first <laughs> the first person to reach North America. And it was like before 1100. So I had that tension growing up as a kid. Who actually discovered America? My dad was a high school history teacher, and he always asserted that the Native Americans discovered Columbus. <laughs> hey, guys, look what I found. <laughs> Send him back. It was a courageous thing to do, but someone was already here. Did you watch the Flintstones growing up? Oh, every morning. <laughs> well, that dates you right there, right? Because the Flintstones was actually a primetime TV show, like The Simpsons. So you're obviously too young to remember. Okay, boomer. <laughs> Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. a primetime show, but yeah, right. You and I watched it either before school or after school every single day. But on the Flintstones, they had a brontosaurus. And so (laughs) most of the paleontology I learned as a child came from the Flintstones. (laughs) (laughs) But they had a brontosaurus. And then a few years ago, we were told the brontosaurus was no longer believed to be an actual dinosaur. Do you remember that? Yeah. Didn't they like bolt it together wrong or something? (laughs) Oops. Oops. Yeah. Right. So some guy in the 1800s found some bones from like an older Apatosaurus and a younger Apatosaurus and bolted them together and made a Brontosaurus. And it wasn't until over 100 years later that people said, you know, maybe that's not exactly so. And so I had to unlearn the Brontosaurus. Okay. You had to unlearn that the Brontosaurus wasn't real in the Flintstones. But you were okay with the 65 million year gap between dinosaurs and humans and the fact that you could have a car with stone wheels that you propelled with your feet. (laughs) So you're hung up on the dinosaur. (laughs) But here's the weird thing, right? And that is a few years ago, there was a paper written that, well, there actually is a thing that we could call a brontosaurus. And yeah, they might have hooked things together the wrong way, but there's another species... So the brontosaurus somehow got brought back into reality. And so I'm not sure if it was a real discovery, a not real discovery, or exactly what. I know when I was really young, that's how I thought about discoveries, right, was in terms of digging them up. 
And now we work with people whose discoveries are, well, what's your p-value? That's (laughs) as exciting as things get in our world now, I'm afraid. Yeah, and you know what it makes me think is we had an episode where we may have mocked me relentlessly about my old-timey use of phrases, Mm -hmm. but one of my favorites was hang them all and let God sort them out. (laughs) And I sometimes think about this whole topic in that way which is, all right, you do a bunch of tests and some are significant and some are not significant. Mm -hmm. And so you have the pool of significant ones and you say, these are the ones that are meaningful. These are the ones that I've learned something about. Except the problem is you've got a mixture, right? Mm. Which is some of those may truly be potentially meaningful effects, but some snuck in the back door. Some are type one errors. And so you may have five or 10 or 20 significant p-values, but you don't know which ones, and you can't see air quotes, which are kind of off kilter because I'm still in my sling, is air quotes, which ones are real. You only have open quotes, open air quotes. I know, yeah, they're just open, so it's going to be the whole episode is an open quote. But you know how I think about it sometimes, and this especially happened in the pandemic. How many kids come to you when you're teaching and say, I can't take the exam because fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. All right, a grandparent passed away, they're sick, their dog <laughs> killed their grandparent, I don't know what. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. And you've got a pool of people who do not want to take the midterm. Well, some of those are legit excuses, but some are not. And you've got this mix of real excuses and fake excuses, and you have to make some kind of decision of, are you going to accept them all as real? But you really don't want to accuse someone of lying when they're not. You absolutely don't want to do that. But we have that very situation when we're trying to evaluate from a set of tests which of these significant ones are meaningful and which are spurious. There was a meme posted a couple of years ago where this person said, I once taught an 8 a.m. college class. So many grandparents died that semester. I then moved my class to 3 p.m., No more deaths. And that, my friends, is how I save lives. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. The point being that every day in our lives, we're faced with something where to varying degrees, we have to sort out the real from the not real. Yes. This occurs everywhere we are. Why, yes, I can tie it to baseball. Oh, well, okay. When they open Mile High Stadium in Denver, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is Coors Field. It's no downstream beer. It's no city beer. It's Coors. It's the high country. I'm up to Coors. (laughs) And the Colorado Rockies were brought into Major League Baseball. There was a lot of very serious discussions, should home runs be adjusted for altitude? Mm-hmm. Because higher altitude is thinner air, thinner air is less resistance, less resistance means the equally hit ball can go farther. Mm-hmm. And there was some very real discussion about if you have a home run at Coors Field, should that be counted as something less than a home run? Right. But let's turn things back to where we all work in our day job. 
which is instead of a home run, we get a p-value that is, say, less than 0.05. And we have to decide within probabilistic inference, am I going to assign some potential meaning to that? Or do I think it's a poser? It got in the back door. You didn't deserve that. (laughs) It was a Coors Field home run. It was a Coors Field home run. (laughs) You're damn right. Well, you know, if you only have one test then I think it's just a matter of drawing the line, deciding where you're going to put the wall to get the home run over. But if you have multiple tests, right, then the question is, do I do them all at the 0.05 level or do I make some kind of adjustment? And we had an episode, I have no idea when it was. (laughs) I don't know if it was season one or season two, and it was type one terror. Do you have any recollection of that at all? Only that we desperately needed a Halloween episode And you pointed out that error rhymed with terror, and we said, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Done and done. (laughs) Yeah, so in that particular episode, what I do remember is that the topic was really more about should we control for type 1 error? What are the pluses and minuses associated with that? And we had an episode later with Samantha Anderson from Arizona State who talked about the role that type 1 error control plays in trying to ensure replicability. So the general problem then was if we have a whole bunch of things that we're testing, if we're going to control the type 1 error rate, how the heck do we do it when we have all of these p-values or all of these test statistics? And I think the answer kind of is, it depends. Yeah. And let's do like a 60-second reminder of what we're talking about here. We got a null hypothesis and we got an alternative hypothesis. There's not going to be a whale petting machine, please. This is my challenge to you. Explain this without the use of a whale petting machine. Go. No. Do not sad whale me. Do not. No. All right, before I was interrupted, we got a null hypothesis that is there is no effect. There's an alternative hypothesis, which there is an effect. The p-value on a given test represents what is the probability that we would have observed an effect this large or larger if the null hypothesis held. And if that is sufficiently small, and we shrug and say less than 5%, then we conclude within some degree of error that I believe it is unlikely I would have observed my effect if there was really no effect in the population. And so we reject the null hypothesis. And as you pointed out, if there's a single test and we have an alpha of 0.5, so that the type 1 error is what is the probability that you reject the null when the null is actually true? In other words, What is the probability we're going to say there's an effect when there's really not? That's the kind of error that we're talking about here, type 1 error. Now, you do one test and one evaluation of the null, that alpha level is known. It is 5%. Mm -hmm. All right? Where things go sideways on you is what if you have two tests or three tests or five tests or 10 tests, which we very, very often, if not always, have. Mm -hmm. And I will not do whale petting. I'm going to do throwing objects at your teeth. (laughs) So I did this once in a class and it was great fun. And if you teach this and you have a TA who is non-litigious, I would suggest doing something similar because it works really well, (laughs) is I had my TA go up to the front of the room. There were like 100 students in the class. It was intro stat. And I had him go to the front of the room. And we were in a room where no one would throw away a dry erase marker that was dead. Oh, gosh, I hate that. And so there were just dozens of them lying around. So I picked up an armful of these markers. 
And I faced the class and my TA was against the wall behind me. And I picked up one marker and I said, there's a 5% chance I'm going to hit Richard with this marker. (laughs) And then I whipped it back over my shoulder. I mean, it had some juice on it. And he jumped out of the way as it hit the wall. Mm -hmm. And I had not talked about any of this. The kids didn't know what I was getting into. And I picked up a second marker and I said, there's a 5% chance this is going to hit Richard. And I wailed that one over my shoulder. And then just rapid fire, I shot marker after marker at him. (laughs) And at one point, he said something about, how long is this going on? And I said, don't be a baby. There's a 5% chance that any marker is going to do this. And organically, he said, I don't care. One of these is eventually going to hit me. (laughs) And it was like... That's it. Each marker was a per test probability, but the set of markers that at least one of those was going to bean my TA (laughs) is a family-wise error. So then the family-wise type 1 error rate is the probability of of hitting Richard one or more times, right? The probability of making a type 1 error in one or more of the tests that you have. And so that has been the focus historically of how we have tried to adjust the type 1 error rate. That's right. And there's a very simple equation that shows what is your family-wise error rate given your alpha level and how many comparisons you're making. And you can do it for two tests, three tests, any number of tests. Under the null hypothesis is true. What this means is there really is no effect. Mm -hmm. If you do 10 tests under a condition when there is really no effect, there's a 40% chance at least one of those 10 is going to have a p-value less than 0.05. This should scare the living crap out of you. Totally. The dead crap too. (laughs) (laughs) And historically, this has scared the crap out of people. People like Fisher and Tukey and Newman and Cools, who didn't work together, but their names got stuck together. I didn't know that. It's like Gauss and Markov. Exactly right. <laughs> they were 100 years <laughs> apart, and now they're buried right next to each other, and I can see them. <laughs> but for tests of comparing means, for example, when you have five means that you're interested in comparing, they might be means from five different treatment conditions, for example. The idea of pairwise comparisons among them, there are 10 pairwise comparisons among five means. And people like Fisher, Fisher was very simple. He just said, well, use a significant F test. And then if you don't get through that, then you don't get to go test them at all. But once you go in there, he said, go nuts with your 0.05. But Newman and Cools set up different guidelines. Tukey set up different guidelines. And without getting into the details of them, they were all toward trying to protect your family-wise error rate to some acceptable level. Now, there's a more general strategy, and this relates a little bit to what you were saying about 10 independent tests yielding an error rate of around 40%. You know, the classic way of trying to deal with that is just a Bonferroni correction. Bonferroni was a real person back in the, like, 20s and 30s who had the very simple strategy that was echoed again in the 60s by Olive Dunn, that you just take your alpha level and however many tests you're going to conduct, you just divide by that number of tests. Now, that's more conservative than you would actually do based on what you just described, because if you do 10 tests at the 0.05 level and the overall compound error rate is 40%, then the idea of doing each of those tests at a 0.05 level divided by 10 actually overcorrects. But it does correct, right? So if you're worried about this thing called family-wise error rate, a very simple strategy is just to chop that alpha way, way down 
And the nice thing about that is A, it's simple. And then B, it also cuts across different types of tests, right? Because we're just operating on the p-value. Things like Tukey and Newman Cools and all of that assume you're dealing with means. In this case, you could imagine having one test in part of what you're doing that's a t-test, another one that's an f-test, another one that's a chi-square test. And the unifying theme for all of those is that they all give you a p-value. So procedures like Bonferroni operate at the level of the p-value. So then the question is, what can we do with that p-value to try to control that error rate to something that we think is acceptable? And I actually like the logic of the Bonferroni-like correction. It makes a ton of sense, Mm -hmm. except the power reaper gets paid. (laughs) Do you know there's not just one reaper? There are actually multiple reapers. Really? Think about it conceptually. What we're trying to do is to say, we are going to demand more evidence from our data to identify a meaningful effect. That's literally what we're doing with these Bonferroni corrections. Mm -hmm. So we get a win and a lose on this. The win is we really do protect against that alpha inflation is what it's called sometimes, the family-wise error rate. But the problem is when we might have had power of 0.6 or 0.7, we now might have power of 0.1. Yeah. Our power does a Thelma and Louise off the (laughs) cliff. (laughs) Let's keep going. You sure? Yeah. One view of that is that if you were going to conduct 100 tests and you chop your 0.05 into 100 little slivers each 0.0005, one viewpoint on this is, well, you know, if you're going to conduct 100 tests, then you better power up, you know, that's the price you pay. But another way to think about this is, well, okay, but maybe Bonferroni is unnecessarily conservative. Maybe there are things that we can do to get more power than Bonferroni to try to be able to find some of those things that actually are true effects, but that were penalized by the conservatism of the Bonferroni procedure. And so how do we utilize the idea of error control, but do something that winds up being better? And what we're trying to do is just say, is there a middle ground? All right. None of us want to not correct at all because we're going to get potentially spurious findings. Nobody wants to do Thor's hammer and divide alpha by 100 Mm -hmm. because we're going to have virtually no power. Is there some middle ground between those two extremes? Right. And what I like, and this is how I was taught it originally, it's kind of a fairness issue. So a bone feroni is a correction on the number of tests. You're doing 10 tests, you got to adjust for that number. You're doing 20 tests, you got to adjust for that number. Well, there's an interesting little logical thing, which is you can't make a type 1 error if your p-value is over Mm 0.05. Let's say you get a p-value of 0.1 or a p-value of 0.2. You can't make a type 1 error with a p-value of 0.2 if you're following an alpha of 0.5 because you're literally saying, I don't have evidence to reject the null. So maybe a middle ground is to say, wait a minute, some kids are lying about their grandparents, some kids are not lying about their grandparents, (laughs) but they all want out of the midterm. I wonder if I can try to separate those groups out. Well, what if we focused on just the ones that fall below our alpha and say, this is the pool where I could potentially make a type one error? I wonder if there's some principled way where I could try to sort out what proportion of these are real and what proportion of these are not. And you, by the way, are doing some incredible sleight of hand here. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I was kind of hoping you wouldn't notice. No, 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 no. All right. Let's be clear here. A lot of people have tried to improve Bonferroni with all kinds of gymnastics, but they have all set the family-wise error rate as the ultimate rule, right, as the speed limit that they would have to stay under. There are sequential testing procedures by a variety of people where you line up all of your p-values and then you adjust an alpha level where you test them one at a time, changing the alpha level. But again, the goal of those is to maintain family-wise error rate. There are methods that try to take into account the correlational structure of the tests that led to those p-values, where if the test statistics are highly correlated, there's a different critical value than if they're weakly correlated or not correlated at all. But again, the ultimate goal is to keep the family-wise error rate under a particular level. But what you're talking about is changing the freaking rules. You just Calvin-balled me right here in front of God and everybody and said, well, I mean... It can't be a false discovery if you didn't discover anything. Eh? Huh? Eh? <laughs> eh? <laughs> yeah. You're changing the rules, right? You're no longer subscribing to something called a family-wise error rate. But, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with Calvin Ball. It was kind of like a number of years ago where the government put in some rules where airlines had to meet a minimum on-time percentage or else they would be penalized. Mm -hmm. And overnight, the on-time arrivals increased by like 80% mm -hmm. because all the airlines just added 30 or 40 minutes to how long <laughs> it took to the flight. This is a real thing. Yeah. What I like about the Calvin Ball is you're exactly right I'm changing the rules, but it's what we're trying to do. We've got a pool of effects that have a probability value less than 05, and I really do, in some principled way, want to try to separate those that I have greater confidence in from those that I have less confidence in. Yeah, and all of the thinking around what we're talking about right now stems primarily from work in 1995 by... And there's a very good chance I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of one or both of these names, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Benjamini and Huckberg. Benjamini and Huckberg defined what they called the false discovery rate. And that is exactly what you were talking about. If we think of all the things that we, quote, would have discovered, how many of those are false, right? And so the false discovery rate is not a family-wise error rate. Family-wise error rate is the probability of at least one type 1 error in a set. False discovery rate is, of all the discoveries, what is the proportion of those that we would expect to be false? And they argued, first and foremost, that that's what we should be controlling to whatever alpha level we have. Not the probability of one or more errors in some family of tests, but rather figure out the ones that are potential discoveries and minimize how many of those are false to some acceptable level. And it all goes back to the two-by-two two contingency table we've talked about a lot where you can have columns as the null true or the null false, mm -hmm. and you have rows, did you reject the null or did you not reject the null? We talked a lot about this with Annie's positive COVID test and right. sensitivity and specificity and positive predicted value and negative predictive value. The false discovery rate is just a slightly different ratio of those cells. What we're doing here is we're only looking at the row where you reject the null. 
All right, so remember, one row is you decide to reject the null, and one row is you do not. We're focusing on the row where you reject the null, where there are two cells in that. One cell is the unknown condition that the null is true, and one cell is the unknown condition that the null is false. And the false discovery rate is the ratio of those decisions that were false divided by both of those cells, the total number of nulls you rejected. And so it is the false discovery rate. What is the proportion of your rejected nulls that were incorrectly rejected? The logic of it is beautiful. It is, and they make an argument that this is probably what we should have been doing all along. And I think it's actually a compelling argument because this is how we think about things, right? We don't think about minimizing the chance that anything is screwed up. We think about, all right, well, how many of the results that we're going to claim should we be worried about? And so the question is, how do we do it? How do we control this false discovery rate? And there are a variety of ways to do it. What there isn't is some magic alpha level that we're going to go into this with. So Bonferroni gave us some adjusted value that said, hey, you go in there swinging this bat and whatever you hit, good for you, right? Whatever's a home run, congratulations. The procedure that Benjamin and Huckberg came up with is a bit more complicated than that. It is. So we're going to start with the premise that we can't make a type 1 error if we have a non-significant p-value, because we're not going to reject the null anyway. So we need to focus on those p-values that are less than 0.05. My hankering would be, let's take your set of tests, each of which has a p-value, and let's line them up. We'll start with the smallest one, P of 0.002, and then do the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and then in some way approach this problem from that standpoint. That's right. And if you have Bonferroni on the brain, then what you just described is irrelevant because all of those p-values, whether you order them or not, are going to be compared against the exact same standard. But in the Benjamini and Huckberg procedure, they're not compared to the same standard. And this is the weird thing or the brilliant thing, however you want to look at it. You have the p-values, as you said, arranged from the most impressive, the smallest, all the way to the largest. There are different ways that this method gets described. But the way I like to think about it is that it is a procedure where you sequentially retain null hypotheses that are being tested. Let me make it simple. I know we talked about 10 comparisons before. Let me just make it five so that the math is easier for us while we're listening to this. If you arrange things from the smallest p-value to the largest p-value, in their procedure, what you do is you go to the largest p-value and you ask the question, is this under whatever alpha level I set for myself? And let's use 0.05. Is this under 0.05? And if the worst p-value you have is under 0.05, congratulations, we're going to call them all discoveries. You reject all of the null hypotheses. Yay, you're very, very happy because the least impressive one got under that. However, if it's the case that that worst p-value is not significant in a 0.05 level, then you put it in the pile of a non-discovery, and then you move up to the remaining ones. And what you do with the remaining ones depends on whether you are controlling a family-wise error rate or you're controlling a false discovery rate. In the control of the false discovery rate, what you do as you work your way up in the procedure I'm describing is that the next one will get compared to the 0.04 level, and the next one the 0.03 level, next one 0.02 level, and then the last one the 0.01 level. 
And each time you work your way from a worse p-value to a slightly better p-value, you ask yourself, do I get under this particular adjusted alpha level? So if I retain the null hypothesis associated with the largest p-value because it was greater than 0.05, I ask myself, is the next one smaller than 0.04? And if it's smaller than 0.04, yay, I reject that hypothesis and all the rest. I don't even look at them. I just reject them all. But if that one is larger than 0.04, I put that in the retain pile. It's a non-discovery, and I move up to the next one. I compare it to 0.03, and so forth, working my way all the way up from the worst p-value to the best p-value. And in the end, I have a set that I consider to be discoveries and a set I consider to be non-discoveries. And this particular sequential process controls what we know now to be the false discovery rate, the rate at which the discoveries that we claim are false. So we're doing more than nothing, but we're not doing Thor's hammer with Bonferroni, right? It's a different motivation. As you say, I am willing to admit it's Calvin Ball. Yeah. Right? We're doing a little intellectual judo where we've got this big (laughs) force coming at us and we're going to move it in a direction that is of use to us. Uh I know this because you and I have sparred in your backyard. And at one point I was standing there and at another point I was not standing there. And we're doing that with this entire process. We're still building in a protection to try to sort out those real from not real effects But we're not doing such a Byzantine correction that we're dropping our power to near zero. This is just a middle ground. And it's well-motivated. It is logical. It makes a lot of sense. People were working on this before that 1995 paper, Mm -hmm. but they were doing it by eyeball. They literally would talk about eyeballing these plots, and it was the Benjamini Hochberg in 95 that formalized it. But that eyeballing, I thought this was a neat way of thinking about it. Imagine we're doing a simulation and imagine that we have a single distribution where we draw two samples of data Mm -hmm. and the null hypothesis is true. All right. So this is just classic. We're going to draw two samples, compute the means, take the difference of the means, get the p-value for the difference. We're going to do it 10,000 times and we're going to plot the Mm p-values. Well, what happens when you do that is you get, within sampling variability, a uniform distribution. Mm -hmm. The p-values are pretty much flat. You're going to get some 01s, 02s, 03s, 0.5s, 0.9s, 0.95s. That's your uniform distribution under the null. All right, so set that distribution aside. Now we're going to do that very same thing again, but now we're going to have the null is false. So we talked about this a couple episodes ago. That is, there really is a difference between the two groups. We draw them, compute the means, take the difference between the means, compute the p-values, and plot those p-values. Well, there's going to be a big piling up at smaller Mm p-values because we're detecting an effect that's really there. And then it's going to have this drop-off and this long tail (laughs) of what are functionally type 2 errors. Mm -hmm. We're going to get occasionally a p-value of 0.1 or 0.12 or 0.15, and we're saying there's not an effect when there really is. All right, so one of those distributions is there's no effect. They're lying to you about your dead grandparent. (laughs) The other distribution is there really is an effect, And their grandparent did die, and we don't know which is which, and we're going to mix those two distributions together. Yeah. Well, now what do you have? 
where you've got a bit of a piling up on the left-hand side that drops off, but then kind of goes flat. flat. Mm -hmm. It goes uniform because that's that uniform part of the distribution when there's really not an effect. And so back in the day, people would do this and kind of eyeball, well, where's that flat part and where's the non-flat part? And we're going to try to understand the real from the not real from those lines. And the Benjamini Hochberg said, wait, 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 we can formalize this mathematically. And they actually treat the false discovery rate as a random variable hmm. and make this a formal process. So I like historically where it went from a, eh, it's about here to formalizing as you just described is let's adjust that cut point as we test hypothesis by hypothesis. I love it. And I love that explanation that you just gave of that mixture of distributions of p-values. That's such a great visual that you have that hump on the left and then that uniform bleed. I think that's just such a cool way of thinking about it. Now, if I were someone trying to sort those out, even using an intuitive method, I'm going to have a hard time if there are five tests, five p-values that are generated out. Benjamini and Huckberg, they described the false discovery rate procedure in their paper, and they actually showed its behavior for up to 64 null hypotheses that were being tested. And one of the criticisms that they got was, who the heck is ever going to be testing 64 hypotheses? <laughs> and in fact, their paper kind of just sat there for a few years, and it took a while for people to bite on it. And one of the major things that gave that a push was like genetic research, for example. If you think about, oh, yeah, we tested differences between these two characteristics across a thousand genes. Well, you try and bring Bonferroni in there for a correction and you are killing your ability to find anything. But with the false discovery rate procedure, you're actually giving yourself a fighting chance to be able to find things. And so with microarray data and all the kinds of things that go on in those worlds where increasing numbers of tests are very realistic, I mean, think about even things that we do in the social sciences. The more we are gathering these real-time data from people, the more we have a need to conduct lots and lots of tests. This is just sitting there ripe for use. In fact, a number of years ago, NAEP, National Assessment of Educational Progress, said we will be using the FDR as a way to control error rate in the tests that we will be doing. And agencies like Institute of Education Sciences, for example, they have it written into their call for grants that you need to show how you are controlling the type 1 error rate. And they even recommend the false discovery rate as a way to do that. So when I sit on IES panels, I see people using the FDR all the time because that is what is considered to be accepted. So there's this move away from the traditional family-wise error rate control to something that exacts control, but exacts control using somewhat different rules while still giving you power to find something. So the world sort of came around to needing this, and it was sitting right there. And to be clear, can you still make a type 1 error under FDR? Of course. Mm -hmm. Can you make a type 2 error? Well, of course, right? Is you can still get somebody who's lying about their dead grandparent. Mm -hmm. You can still get somebody who you're like a total wiener to, and it turns out grandma really did die. Grandma's dead. Grandma's dead, she's about 95, she hadn't breathed in a week, I don't think that she's alive.
it's just trying to find that middle ground again of let's try to preserve some degree of power while protecting against some degree of false discoveries. So let me throw one back at you then. Okay. Yes, genetic arrays, a thousand SNPs, all of these things. What about a structural equation model that maybe has 68 estimated parameters? Now, in the weirdness of the SEM, we have this massive, incredible, sophisticated statistical architecture, and rarely, if ever, do you see a correction done in any SEM application. Mm -hmm. Can this approach be applied to a set of parameters from an SEM? It could be applied to any set of parameters wherever they come from. Where there is a p-value, there could be FDR. Whether or not it should be used, I don't know. Right? I think the structural equation modeling literature, in my experience, goes in and out of beliefs about type 1 error control. It's like people have different belief systems for the parameters that people have put there because there's a certain a priori feel to it that it's not really exploratory. It's like, no, I, I've, I've got a hypothesis for each one of these. And so it feels almost like every parameter is its own family. And if everyone is its own family, then everyone gets the 0.05 level. But every once in a while, you know, I'll see a manuscript or I'll see a publication come through where people will say, maybe we should be correcting for type 1 error in some way across all of the parameters that we have in our model. So I'm absolutely not against it, but you don't see it very often. Yeah. And what I like about it, and it's totally consistent with Calvin Ball, mm -hmm. is you can do this in any way that you think best for your particular application. So, for example, say you took an SEM and say just to round things off, you had 60 parameter estimates. Sure. And you have several multiple indicator latent factors. You've got some structure. You've got a couple of covariates and you have 60 parameters. Well, if we don't do any correction at all, we have 60 tests each taken at 0.05. I'm going to be able to whale every pen in the room at Richard and pick them all up and just keep whaling at them. Yeah. But how many of those are we really interested in, mm -hmm. in making a substantive interpretation about the meaningfulness of that parameter? Right. You know, let's say you have 20 indicators on a latent factor. Well, there are 20 residual variances. Do we really care about an exact p-value on a residual variance, or are we just shrugging and say, you clean up at the end of the parade, you're that part of the variability that wasn't explained by the model? Well, don't count those 20 in the correction that you're doing. That's right. You could potentially make the same argument for the lambdas to say, look, we're going to have these factor loading estimates and we've got the indicators on the factors, but what I'm doing is trying to optimally capture the construct of interest at the latent variable level. What I'm really interested in is my mediated effect with the structures. Well, maybe you distill down to where out of those 60 parameters you estimated, there are eight that are really of fundamental theoretical interest well, you can focus on those. And it's as if the other ones don't even exist. So when you rank order your p-values, you're not rank ordering all the residuals and all the factors. You're only rank ordering those regression coefficients and then doing what Greg just described on those. It's Calvin ball. Nobody can say, oh, you can't do that. I can do anything I want. <laughs> 
Well, and that idea has existed as a tension in the multiple comparisons literature for over half a century, the idea of how do you define a family? And what you just did is you said, all right, I'm going to relegate the loadings and the error variances to be peripheral parameters, and I don't really care about the error control over those. Sometimes they're significant, sometimes they're not. Meh, that's really just a vehicle for me to get to the stuff that I actually care about in the typically latent portion, structural portion of the model. And so you identified those as your family, those eight. And by the way, that could include things that are derived from those existing parameters too. You might have indirect effects that are really these compound parameters made up of other things, whatever. Your job then is to define that family and defend that family. And then whatever your error correction method is, that's where it comes into play, whether it is something more family-wise based or something that is a bit more powerful now, which is a false discovery rate applied to those. So absolutely, it is possible. So let me ask you, do you think we should use FDR in SEM or should we do something else? Yes. I'm sorry, do you really want me to expand on that? Yeah, so that tells me you're of a mixed mind. Exactly. And I think SEM as a field has not done justice to the problem of alpha inflation. Mm -hmm. I think that we hide behind our forts in the living room that we build out of equations and estimators and path diagrams, and we're still back in 1940s of having five comparisons and taking each at 0.05. I think we've not done the field a favor by the extent to which we have ignored alpha inflation in SEM. That said, we tend to not have power to fight our way out of a wet paper bag. (laughs) And the notion of taking that wet paper bag power and lowering it even further Mm -hmm. causes me concern in terms of discovery and generation of findings and things like that. And so I really like the idea of using something like this within the SEM framework, but maybe not blindly. Meaning maybe don't just rank all the p-values that you have, but give some consideration to those that are fundamental to the theoretical hypotheses you're testing in a given model. Yeah, I like that. And then as with any kind of sample size planning, which we talked about recently, it becomes up to the researcher to plan using that false discovery rate across that key subset of parameters, right? Not across all 60, but across those eight and plan accordingly. So that's the all things in moderation in your view, right? Yeah, and also inform the reader. You don't have to make firm decisions. You can have a table of parameter estimates in which you indicate which of those would you deem significant at a traditional alpha of 05, Hmm. and which of those that fell below 05 are deemed significant with an FDR correction. You can convey both in the same table, and I'm kind of a fan of that. So it's all evidence, right? It's all information for the reader. No, it's all distribution of blame. If I do both, (laughs) then you can't jump on my back for not doing it or for doing it. All of life is distribution of blame. (laughs) But this has applications in regression as well in the following sense, right? In a typical regression, you might have P predictors of an outcome, You could imagine using a false discovery rate associated with the slopes of all of those P predictors. On the other hand, you might think of four of those predictors as control variables, things that you're just putting in there so that you can control for the effects of those when you estimate the others. So you might instead 
tweak your alpha level down to something that takes those other four variables out of the equation, just as you did with loadings and error variances in the structural model. So the same ideas apply to a variety of situations. And then, as you said, if you want, you can provide the results for what would be significant at a typical 0.05 level as to what would be significant at an FDR level, then just use those as information for the reader to make decisions. Yeah, they're like bookends. Here's if I did no correction at all. Here's if I did a moderate one. And then use that to inform the conclusions you draw in your discussion section. Hmm. And then what confidence we have in those findings as we move to replication and extension and all the things that we want to do. I think all of that makes sense. And it might even make us feel a little bit better that there are false discovery rate confidence intervals that have also been proposed. For those of us who don't just want to stick with statistical significance or non-significance, we can also have confidence intervals around our parameter estimates whose width is consistent with the level of control that we're implementing. That wasn't Benjamini and Huckberg, but that was about 10 years later by Benjamini and Yekotili. So for those of us who tend to think about things from a confidence interval perspective rather than a p-value perspective, we have that as well. And that might make this even more accessible for people. And here's the neat thing. Because these are primarily based on this overall alpha level, the individual p-values, the number of tests that you're considering, we can use this approach using methods that transcend the particular statistical model. You can have six tests that come out of an OLS regression, that come out of a confirmatory factor analysis, that come out of an SEM, that come out of darn near anything we do. Yep. And there are packages that are online. There are macros that are online. There's a proc molt test in SAS that you can do. Dave Thyssen co-authored a paper where there's an Excel spreadsheet yeah. where you enter the p-values and it will do these calculations. And the neat thing is this is very accessible Very. once you get to this point in wanting to do it. I love that about it too, right? It redefines our type 1 error rate in a way that is much more intuitive and maybe should have been using all along. And it does it in a way that we don't need a ton of fancy machinery, right? We can just do this by hand in an Excel spreadsheet or in any one of a number of available packages. So everything about this, I think, is a win. And it gives us the control that we're looking for while not completely losing power to find those real discoveries. So I'm, I'm a fan. So what you're telling me is had you known these procedures as a child, you would have probabilistically determined that the brontosaurus did not exist. Oh, clearly. <laughs> you're still okay with the foot-driven car. <laughs> well, that's eco-friendly. <laughs> You think we could use FDR to make Pluto a planet again? Yeah, I hope you're not holding your breath on that one. At least a Coors Field planet? <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye, everybody. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for things to fail to falsely discover or... Wait, no, yeah, that's right. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, from RedBubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that even Bonferroni would reject. In the spirit of type 1 error, which is rejecting a null hypothesis that is actually true, 
Today's episode has been sponsored by the Type 14 error. Rejecting a null hypothesis that you switched to a one-tailed test to be able to reject just so you could say you found something, but that is actually true. And by the Type 27 error. Rejecting a null hypothesis at the 0.15 level as trending towards significance because your funding won't get renewed by that agency unless your results show their preferred methods to be promising, but that is actually true. And finally, by the Type 46 error. Rejecting a null hypothesis that your reviewer insisted you test in the revision, which is based on their extensive work, see attached references, but that is actually true. This is most definitely not NPR.